Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Forward Podcast. This is Lance Armstrong, your host each and every week. Exciting guest this week, Ben Gibbard, the lead singer for Death Cab for Cutie, one of my favorite bands. So cool to sit down with him. Uh, we were actually uh, in Denver for uh, for Velorama, which was sort of the, the the overarching festival down in uh, in the Front Range for the Colorado Classic. So Velorama being the race and the music festival. One night Wilco headlined, the next night Death Cab headline. Uh, so I reached out to Ben, asked him if he, he'd be willing to sit down and chat about a lot of things we share in common. Uh, loves to run, loves to suffer, loves to uh, to be outdoors, and uh, and also knows what it's like to, to to stumble a bit, pick himself back up, and keep moving forward. So uh, thank you to Ben for coming on and uh, and opening up about so many things that I think you will all find interesting. Before we get to that, I just want to say a couple things. I just landed actually here in Austin, Texas, it's 101 degrees. What the truck? I mean, and by the way, for those of you who, you know, live in Arizona and and say, oh, it's 100, that's, you know, that's not bad. This is 101 with high humidity. It is sweltering. I've been here for one hour and and I'm about to turn around. I know. Nobody feels sorry for me. Anyways, hey, in other brighter and cooler news, literally cooler news, the Aspen 50, my 50-mile mountain bike race in Aspen, Colorado, is now official. For month, I've been talking about this for months. I know during stages I talked about it. During the, um, the tour I talked about it. I finally got off my sorry ass and put it on sale this week. It's filling up quick. If you're a mountain biker, if you love... Uh, Ride in Colorado, or if you're anywhere in the area, uh, come on over. The event is September 17th. You can sign up at wedosport.com. There's only 200 spots. And uh, so I suggest you hustle the long bar over the U. Um, But in case you haven't been to Aspen or Colorado at that time of year, I got to tell you, when the Aspen trees start to turn uh, yellow in the fall, this is the peak season, so a lot of this route, not all of it, but a lot of it is just in and amongst a sea of yellow. You, you, if you love mountain biking, you love suffering, you can't miss it. I uh, hope to see you September 17th. Fun little after party, good group of people. Uh, sign up at wedosport.com. And like I say every week, any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, uh, quality control issues, uh, complaints about bad words, send them to the forward podcast at we do sport.com the forward podcast at we do sport.com look forward to hearing from you enjoy my new friend ben gibbard i had a heck of a time talking to him Ben, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I remember the first time I saw you. I don't know. I, I can't remember if we met. I saw you at the Santa Barbara Bowl. And this would have been 10 years ago? Yeah, I think it was 2008. I remember because yeah. I remember you were there, and I wanted to meet you there, but I had stepped out for like five seconds. And one of the guys in the band I, yeah. was a cyclist or a, a fan or... I forget which one it was. Yeah, my, our bass player, Nick. Yeah, I think, he, I think you met him and maybe our drummer, Jason. Yeah. Time. Yeah. 
That is such, you know, for the and for the listener. I mean, the Santa Barbara Bowl is. I mean, I don't know about for you guys, but for uh, for a listener or, or just a you know concert goer, it is such a killer setting. Yeah, I I love that venue. It's one of our favorites in the in the country and certainly on the West Coast. Yeah. I mean, it's just. I mean, Santa Barbara is so beautiful, and just the sun goes down, and it's cool, and yeah, it's a great place yeah. for sure. What is what is your favorite place to play? And maybe there's a top three. Yeah, um, you know, I'd have to say probably sticking kind of close to home. There's a venue in Seattle called the Showbox, which mm-hmm. is about a 1,200 capacity club. Um, you know, it was a jazz club in the 20s and 30s. It's been there for a super long time. It's right downtown next to Pike Place Market, which is a landmark that a lot of people might be aware of. Um, where they throw the fish. Oh yeah, uh, uh, but that was yeah, on a Visa commercial once I think. Oh yeah, I think so. or it was on some commercial. Yeah, it's it's like whenever you watch like football on the weekends and their yeah. Seahawks are playing, it's all, there's always the obligatory shot and throwing the fish. But um, yeah, the Showbox is right across the street from there, and it's just one of those great venues where it's a 1,200 capacity venue, but it feels really intimate and small. Yeah. And it was one of those places that when we were kind of first started coming up and playing smaller clubs, we yeah. dreamed of playing. And so I think those venues always for me are the ones I. I look. I I like the most. It's not so much the Madison Square Gardens. What's the, the, the gorges up there? What's uh, people always? Because I always talk about Red Rocks, and mm-hmm. on this show, a lot mm-hmm. of times I talk about Red Rocks, and that's such a magical place to see a show. But people talk about the gorge, like that's that's up that way, isn't it? Yeah, it's about um, about two hours east of Seattle. I know nothing about the Northwest. Okay, well, you should come visit sometime. I, it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that's a really in the, su- bit, in the summer. It's beautiful. In the vi- yeah, right about now. Actually, right now it's not so beautiful because we we're we're getting inundated from, by smoke from the BC fires right now, which has been really tragic, much more tragic for uh, people living in British Columbia. But you know, a lot of Portland, Seattle is kind of enveloped in smoke and yeah. right now from those fires. But yeah, the summer is the best time for sure. And this venue is wonderful. It's just out. It's kind of out in eastern Washington, which is you know very different. You know, from Western Washington where we live. I mean, we're evergreens and mountains and rivers. Yeah, and then Eastern Washington is like the desert, pretty much. But yeah, it's if you can imagine a stage sitting in front of like a mini Grand Canyon, it's kind of what it looks like. That'll work. Yeah, we saw a show uh, the night we got here to Denver. We saw uh, just speaking of cool venues, and I'd never been to the Botanical Gardens here in Denver. I don't know if you've ever played there or been asked Mm. to play. I think so. So we saw Jose Gonzalez there. Oh yeah, and it's. It's and I bring this up because you talked about this bowl, but it's like a grass field bowl. If that makes sense. in the yeah, stage, okay. and he plays in the everybody whoever plays it plays in the round. It was amazing. Oh, that's cool. I've yeah, we I've never played there before. But yeah, that sounds pretty, pretty yeah. fantastic. It's probably it's not big enough for you to play there. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> I'd still like to see a show there for sure. Yeah, yeah. And when I was watching, because when I watched this this Solomon video about you running, and and there was a bunch of footage from Red Rocks, and um, this idea that you go out on the road, I don't know if you still do it, but but you brought at least on that particular film or that particular tour, you brought a trail guide. Mm-hmm. You yeah. hired a guy to 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 come on the road with you to take you running, or source the trails, find the trails. That is so badass. <laughs> well, it kind of stemmed out of. Uh, it makes perfect sense, by the way. Oh no, it was. I mean, it made sense in a lot of for a lot of reasons. I, we only really did it on that tour. It was a postal service tour um, in 2013 that we we did it. Um, we're not allowed it, to mention the postal service on this podcast. No, we're not. Okay, no, I'm kidding. All right. Oh yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Do you, um, do you have a hundred million laying around that we can get these guys off my back? Because <laughs> if you do, then we can talk about it. <laughs> All right. No, we can kidding. cut that section. No, no. Uh, but um, no, actually. Uh, yeah, we. I had I had met 
somebody who's now a really good friend of mine and kind of one of my like running gurus, this guy, Nick Triolo, when uh, I was down in Mexico for a music festival and I wanted to, you know, kind of explore the trails, but really wanted to make sure I had somebody with me who knew what was going on. We became fast friends. And then when uh, Pulse Service was doing this kind of reunion tour in 2003, you know, we needed an extra crew guy just to do some day-to-day stuff. But I also realized like, you know what? Management hates when I just disappear into the woods or the mountains by myself. It's like they really don't like that. Uh, Makes them nervous. And this seemed like a perfect opportunity to basically pay someone who is a friend to kind of come out and do half a real job and half kind of a fun job. So it was great, man. We just kind of like, we'd get to cities and we'd, rent a car and go like drive out into wherever we were going and and he he did the research and found he ba- in one of the articles i read he he basically showed the email where you sent like you know you know the here's the gig you know bunk on the bus and and yeah, per yeah. Diem and, da, 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 and and all you gotta do is take me running every day yeah i mean that's that that's pretty much what it was i mean it seemed like an indulgence for sure but at the time we were like on that tour like yeah you know we actually need somebody to do a real job and yeah. This would be a kind of a cool way to, to, you know, kind of bring somebody along who I just enjoy spending time with and yeah. love running with, and, and we can kind of get some get some adventures mm-hmm. out of it for sure. And you know, because to me, at least tr- learning about your life, and that's what I do on this thing. I read all about people's lives, and you know, there are a couple of storylines here. One one is you stop drinking, mm-hmm. um, and. I'd love to talk about that. And then the other is you start running. I don't know if those happened. <laughs> if you put on a pair of running shoes the day after you stopped drinking or if that was just a, and one of the stories I think you talked about being on an elliptical one day and at the gym and thought, well, what? you see the treadmill and thought, I wonder if I can run two miles. Yeah. I started running. Um, that's exactly how I started running. Yeah. And just, and I, at the time I was drinking pretty heavily and kind of balancing it out with, or quote unquote balancing out by going to the gym, mm. but um, but uh, you know, when I don't say heavily. Um, I mean, heavily is relative, right? Right. I mean, no, I, I, I think it. I think uh, you know, part of part of being a musician is that you can always find somebody who has a a a, a worse problem than you to justify to 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 lie to yourself and telling yourself that you don't have a problem. Right. You know, like I I wasn't the kind of drinker who had to be peeled off the floor every night uh and thrown into a cab or into the bus or whatever but you know i i was drinking way too much and i think that when i looked around at other musician friends of mine who had like severe drinking problems or mm-hmm. you know turning into like woeful alcoholics are we talking about day drinking or uh not so much for me i was more of a night drinker but yeah, yeah friends of mine who would day drink or just you know would every night you know would wake up and start drinking or you know be so drunk they don't remember the, remember the shows they were playing stuff like that um and you know, I I I don't know if I could call my drinking responsible drinking. Like I, you know, I would drink before shows, and you know, a little maybe a little bit during, but it wasn't as if I was, you know, I wasn't like George Jonesing and all over the place, you know. Right. But still, I was drinking way too much, and it was affecting my relationships with my friends, family, loved ones, um, and it was just something that needed to come to a, a, an end. And I I realized before that tour that I think you saw us on for the first time, you know, I realized that. I couldn't go into another tour cycle drinking the way I had been drinking on the last one or other people were going to stop this for me. Does that make sense? Yep. Like I didn't want somebody else telling, I didn't want to walk into a room and see all my friends and right. family. An you know, invention. Yeah, exactly. Or 
or knowing where I'd left off on the last tour, realizing, you know, I left off that tour like up here and I'm just, that means I'm going to start here. I'm going to go up here. Yeah. Uh, so I just kind of had like a, it's like I had this moment where I, I was on a weekend with a friend of mine. We went on a long bender down in Big Sur. And then on the flight home, I remember th- saying like, wow, that was really, that was like really crazy. And I really need to get this under control. That This is really a problem. But you know, tonight's my friend's birthday party. I just need to go and make an appearance. I'll just go and have a beer. Just go have a beer, like one beer. Right. And then go home, you know, and you can do that, right? You know, you're an adult. And, you know, what happened? It wasn't that, you know, it was like I was stumbling back home at three in the morning after having 15 beers, <laughs> whatever it was. And then the next morning, I was like, that's it. I can't do this anymore. And you this just is did like, it on your own. Yeah, I was like, that's it. Because I had told myself, hey, you need to show some restraint tonight. And I was unable to show restraint. Right. So I just realized in that moment, like, that's it. I'm not doing it ever again. That was February of 2008. Wow, I know we we found an old Instagram post, or not, maybe not may not have been that old, but you, it was an old picture of you drinking. A, the beer was up to your mouth, and you said, <laughs> "You said I this guy, I killed this guy nine years ago, and and he's never coming back." Yeah, I mean, I I I wasn't particularly happy with how I looked in that photo <laughs> when I posted it, or kind you of definitely look a lot different. I look a lot different yeah. now. Yeah, for sure. Not to get weird on you, but you look a lot different. Yeah, I I I, I definitely do. Um, yeah, you and must I just have dropped how many pounds. 30 pounds probably yeah, yeah. yeah and then when you combine that with running it's like sure. your body's like you all of a sudden you're not you there how x i don't know how many hundreds of calories that you're not ingesting every day and alcohol plus the food i was eating when i would be wasted right. you know like hey whole pizza sounds good right sure um so yeah and then i think with that in combination with running and then eventually moving into like longer stuff yeah i'm much happier with my appearance now than i was then yeah and it didn't start as one of, you know, you get these people that are like, okay, I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to take 30 days off. Like my buddy, he always does January. Never drinks in January. But then February through December, it's... Oh, I did that. Yeah, I, yeah. I did those okay, things did too. Those oh, things. yeah, I did those too. But, you know, I, I, you know, you kind of learn that, you know, if you have to take a whole month off of mm. drinking to prove to yourself that you can take a month off of drinking, then maybe you have a drinking problem. Right. Maybe you should take more than a month. Yeah, exactly. That's how I felt. I mean, everybody's different, but I realized, like, yeah, those whole like dry January things. It's just like they're just they're just. To, I I thought for myself. I realized for myself I was doing it to prove that I could stop for a bit, but it, I didn't want to stop. You know, I wanted to keep drinking. Sure, sure. And then the running just comes on. I mean, it starts with a two mile run on a on, on a treadmill, and then the next day you did two and a half, and then and now you're running ultras and. Yeah, I mean, nuts. yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was a gradual kind of build. I mean, I started running in like maybe late 2007. Did you run in high school as a kid? No, I no never history did. of running. No, I swam in high school. Okay. I swam competitively through oh, high cool. school. Uh, you swim? Uh, like. I am like yeah. 200. I am. That was my thing. Um, I grew up swimming. I love swimming. I love it too. I, I love, love it too. swimming. Yeah. Everybody that listens to this podcast can tell you I love <laughs> swimming. Like swimming during the Olympics, don't come anywhere near me. <laughs> like it's, uh, I'm just in front of the screen. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. But I never, running was something I never liked. I didn't enjoy it. It Most wasn't. people don't. Yeah, I, I really didn't like it. And I don't know why I just decided one day I had to become a runner. It, I think looking over that treadmill and being like, yeah, I should probably do that. Right. You know, honestly, I felt, I felt a similar, this is a weird parallel, but I felt a similar, I smoked for a little bit when I was younger, when I was like, yeah, college. And I remember like smoking my first cigarette and being like, I hate this, but. I want to be a smoker. Like I wanted to be a smoker. Hmm. And 
I didn't like it at first, and then I made myself do it. And I and it's very different in a way, but I had the same attitude towards running, where it was like, I hate this, I do not like this. This two miles sucked, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna keep doing it. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I had this compulsion towards it. And you know, I didn't run more than four or five miles in a in a in in a spell for probably three years after that. I just kind of ran four days a week, just maybe, to do it. Yeah, just in a gym or like around the neighborhood or whatever. Um, and then signed up for the LA Marathon in 2011, and I had no, I hadn't run a half marathon or right. anything, a 10k, whatever. I just was like, yeah, I you mean, live in LA? Uh, no, I live in Seattle. Oh, that's right. You do, yes, um, but why why LA then? Well, I was living in LA at the time. I got you. So I was there. I was living there for three years. Flea. This this Flea story. Is, yeah. <laughs> for the listener, Flea is the bass player for Rage, uh, Rage uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is a classic story about you wanting to race or having wanting to beat Flea in the marathon. Yeah, well, I saw, I'd seen that Flea had signed up for it, and uh, and I didn't really know him at the time, but I just was like, I'm a, if Flea's running this thing, I'm going to run this thing too. And in my mind, I was like, Flea's considerably older than me. I shouldn't have a problem beating Flea. I can take down Flea. I can take Flea down. But no, he, no Flea beat me by a good 10, 15 minutes or so. And then... You know, in the chaos of the end of this race, where it's like, you know, marathons, there's thousands of spectators, there's thousands of runners. It's, you know, it's not like an ultra where you just finish and there's like somebody hands you like a, a soda right. and there's, you know, and you walk away. It's like, it's just, you know, it's chaos. And like, strangely, the, one of the first people I ran into was Flea and he just had this look on his face and turned to me and was like, wow, that wasn't easy. Right. I was no, like, yeah, that not. wasn't easy. That was right. the hardest thing I've ever done. To this day, I feel that was, that's still the hardest race I've ever done. Yeah. Because it's on pavement. It's on pavement, and at that point, you you have no muscle memory or or kind of cognizance of like how long it's going to be. It's so it, your first marathon feels like it's the it's the it's it, you could not physically run any farther than yeah. that. I did three marathons. I did two New Yorks and a Boston, and the first one, and I was totally I was a total idiot. You know, I mean, I'm thinking I'm an endurance athlete. I've done all these things, blah blah blah. I was like, I was running like four miles a day. And I go run New York, and I had shin splints right before. And I was Wait, like, you didn't run further than four miles? No, I, exactly. I mean, on average. Okay. okay. I mean, I might have done some eight milers, but I didn't okay, but do. Didn't, didn't I didn't go online, you know, type in how to train for a marathon and do the build and do the twenty miler three weeks before. I mean, you know, all the stuff that they tell you to do. I didn't do any of that because I'm thinking, shit, I'll just phone this in. I'm me. <laughs> and I got shin splints, and I was like, okay, these really hurt. And then. It, it was that New York, and this was in 2006, I think. That was the most, and I ran, and I wanted to break three hours. I ran mm-hmm. 259.57 or something, barely broke it. And it was the worst experience ever. The shin splints ended up turning into stress fractures. And I mean, I was, I was laid up, but it was, I remember thinking, I'll never do this again. Maybe yeah. Two more. Yeah, I mean, it, it was horrible. I haven't done a road marathon since. I mean, I, was the, I did that one, and then I, I think a couple years later, I did like a, a year and a half later, I did like a trail marathon. But yeah, I had no desire to go yeah. back to road running. How I mean, fast do you run? Because um, it's hard to it's hard to get a sense from when you know watching the Solomon film or watching other than than your trail guide saying that. I mean, he was basically saying no, that he can really run. Uh, I mean, I think Nick might have been being kind and saying well, that. That's, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'd like to joke with my friends. I'm an, I'm an elite mid-pack runner. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't, uh, I mean, I, when I'm just like running on the roads, I'll cruise at like seven, seven fifteen a mile. But, um, but you know what, running. That's cruising, just. Well, yeah, I mean, just out for a run. Like, they're very, that, that's, that's not mid-pack. There are very few people that. 
can go just clip off seven minute miles. Well, I mean, I can't do that for a marathon, you yeah. know. Um, like today, like today, I just ran like a ten k along the the trail. I was, you know, kind of running a little faster, like a six forty five mile about that. But um, but no, you know, like on a like my ultra times, like you know, if you look at like my ultra sign up, it's like I'm at seventy five percent. You know, it's like right. I'm not, I'm a little above the mid pack, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm not competitive. Yeah. And what's the longest race you've run? Uh, I ran. Cascade Crest 100 miler last August, about around this time last year, and that took me 25 hours, 18 God. minutes. So that no was sleep, no sleep, just running all the way through. Um, pacers, yeah, I had pacers from mile 54 on. That was like where you could pick them up. Uh, I loved it though. I mean, I I had that was that was just a perfect like a perfect day. I had some nausea that kind of came on around like mile 40 ish because I ate something kind of weird at an aid right. station and. And I was kind of concerned that it, that it was going to, it was going to, I was going to roll with that for a lot longer than I did, but I just kind of took it slow, hiked a bit. It kind of dissipated by about mile 50. And then, you know, the rest of the race was just, just golden. I mean, also that race in particular, has a lot of meaning to me. That was my first hundred. And, um, it has a lot of meaning to me because I had paced and crewed yeah. people in that race for a couple of years at this point. And for us in the Seattle area, it's like our backyard hundred miler. It's like, it's like a reunion. Every year you go and you see a lot of the same people at the aid stations and your friends are running, you know, half people come through. Um, and it was just fun. And it's home trails, you know, it's like, it's like, it's about, it starts and ends in this town, east in Washington, which is about an hour east of Seattle yeah. in the Cascades. And it's just beautiful. I mean, views of Mount Rainier and everything. It's awesome. Big climbs? Yeah, I think it was 21,000 feet of climbing. The fact to me is that, you know, people think about, there's two things and, and we both paced friends at Western States 100. But the distance is one thing, sure. and all the, all these have whether it's Hard Rock or the Leadville Hundred or Western States or the one in, outside of Seattle. I mean, the vert and then the de the the descending to me is actually the the worst. So you, you layer in a hundred miles, twenty five hours, but climbing, descending, it just destroys the legs. I don't think people understand what that's like. I mean. It, I actually really prefer it to running on flats. I mean, I don't mean that in any kind of like. Uh, That's because you like, do it all the time. Well, I, and I also I just I like that you know when you're running like I ran a 50 miler this past Saturday called the White River 50 in it's like kind of near Mount Rainier, and it's basically one giant one big climb and descent and another big climb and descent. And the first half of the race I had a really bad first half of the race. I'd eaten some kind of weird for breakfast, and you know it's like a. I don't know, 13 mile ascent from 2,200 feet up to about 6,500 feet. And then the same descent back down to basically the start finish area. And my stomach was just garbage for the whole descent. Ooh. And it's just like, and you know, you're not, and you feel like a, like a wimp not running it because it's downhill. But honestly, what saved me was the next ascent, like the second big ascent because I had to hike most of it. And for me, and that allowed my stomach to kind of balance out. And I found that one of the things I love about running ultras and especially like mountainous ultras is that you get these respites from running. You get this right. chance to like, I got to hike this. I'm going to hike this. I'm, I'm, there's no way I'm going to run this thing. It's an eight mile ascent, 3000 feet. I'm just not going to do it. And, you know, power hiking, a little bit of running here and there, like just, it really just, it, you know, it just, for me, I, I love that because it just, you get a chance to kind of like do something other than just like the same cadence the whole time. Like yeah. if you're running a road marathon, like you're just, it's, most of the same cadence the whole time. You know, you know what I like, and I did until I got injured. I did a few quote unquote ultras. I didn't do any fifties or hundreds, but I did some twenties, and then I did like a thirty something miler. And 
a lot of the ones that I was doing had out and back sections. Mm-hmm. So you would see everybody or almost everybody. And just that that vibe, and, and it was at a time when the ultra community is like, oh my God, he's running ultras, this, the sport's going to shit. And they, they were up in arms. And, and so I'm hearing that, but then I'm in the race and you're doing these out and backs and you're seeing people, right? And I come from a sport where like you didn't, you didn't give anybody props. Like it was not like, right, hey, right, right. Look, yeah. you're looking good, good, you know, uh, keep it up. You know, we, we didn't do any of that. And then you get in this setting where everybody from the first and second place talking to each other from first to hundredth talking to each other going right on, keep it up. I love that. And it, it's, I love it. it. That community in the, in the ultra world is, that is different. And, and I loved that. And, and I remember like I passed like five people and they all said, good job, you're looking great. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then on like the sixth person, I'm like, dude, like wake up. Like this is, this is what this community is like. And I, and it, 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 it was a big moment in my life where I realized that this is just a different sport and a different community than anything I had ever come from. Oh, and I, and that's one of the th- many things I love about the sport. I mean, I can't think of another sport where you have professionals lining up against amateurs for the same race. Yep. I mean, I ran a, I ran a hundred K earlier this year. Uh, this guy named, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy, this guy, Jim Walmsy. Um, did uh, he, he won, did he win Western? He Central? was winning until mile 90, something whatever and he went off course he at, went the, off at that course. At two, strava file was just insane yeah at 2016 where you were there yes, and i was there. I was there so he was he was running this 100k to it was a golden ticket race to get into western state so he was running that to uh you know to, he was going to win it and then get into western states but you know it was it was really amazing it's like this is one of the best ultra runners in the world right. and then there's everybody to me and everybody behind me and you know, there isn't another sport like that that I can think of where you professionals and amateurs line up at the same race and, you know, the distance, the distances themselves are humbling. And it's really a sport that doesn't allow for ego because anybody who's done it for any t- amount of time has gotten their ass kicked by a course, you know, right. or by a mountain, you know, and there are no excuses. It just happens. Or by nutrition. Or by nutrition or whatever. Nutrition or like, is the one that... Or, randomly your stomach goes on you like randomly you 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 know you you know you have to start you know you get a naggle of some sort and it starts like and you have to walk it in the last hour it's like yeah. you know everybody who does the sport has had a humbling moment and it just and i i've met so few assholes in this sport right i just think they get weeded out they do other stuff there's no money in the sport there's no glory in the sport you know it's a lot of training by yourself long hours in the mountains and trails like it's really not the sport for people who, you know, or who need attention and glory and want to make a living at it. So I, that really, that really levels the playing field. And there's a lot of people, not to, I mean, we talked about your drinking, but there's a lot of people in that sport that were, that had crazy histories that were just, that were deep, 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 you know, off the, the rails. And so you see a lot of that. Oh, for sure. I mean, for some, for me, I mean, some I'm in the triathlon world. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a binary person. Like it's on or it's off, yeah. you know? So I'm either drinking or I'm not drinking or I'm not running or I'm running hundred miles, you know? And that's not necessarily the most healthy way to live your life. But I do think that there, these are, you know, you know, swapping out, you know, drinking for running was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Yeah. And becoming a member of this community in particular has, 
has been so wonderful for me in a lot of ways, but also it's like, as a musician, as somebody who for a living gets up in front of thousands of people and um, has people cheering for them, it's, you know, I felt like I was all, throughout my career, I've been able to main, remain fairly grounded, but there have been times where it's, it, it's gotten the best of me. And right. since I started doing Altruist, since I became involved with this community, it's been yet another, another element of my life that's really work to humble me and make me realize like, yeah, this thing I do for a living, I'd love it. I wouldn't change it for anything in the world. But, you know, um, I'm not special because I do it. I'm not more yeah. valuable than another person because I play music. You know? And do you ever write music when you're, or not that you're writing, but when you're running, do you ever, uh, you know, yeah, I guess write music or think of music? Uh, or is that a different process? I very rarely am trying to be creative on Got the trail. It. I mean, more than anything, it's like I, there was a time for a lot of years of my life, especially when I was younger, every moment of my life was dedicated to music. Mm. You know, if I wasn't playing music, I was reading about it. I was listening to it. I was talking about it. And I, I was, I had, that was pretty much the only thing that I did. Mm. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that, you know, you know, in order to sustain my creative endeavors, I need to be a more well-rounded person. I need to have other interests. Um, and that seems to be, be counterintuitive to how some creative people think about the creativity, that you need to kind of maintain your focus on it because if you take your eyes off it for one second, it's going to go away. And I just completely reject that notion. I think that in order to sustain your creativity and to um, enrich it, you need to have other interests. So for me... Getting out on the trail, going out for a four-hour run means like I'm not thinking about music. That also means that let's say I wrote, or it was spent all Monday writing, and then Tuesday morning I go out and do a four-hour run. That's four hours, and I'm not thinking about the thing I just wrote. So when I come back to it Tuesday afternoon, and I listen to it. I'm like, yeah, this is actually really good, or now nah, this isn't as good as I thought it was. Yeah. I'm not choking it out. I'm not spending every second thinking about my writing, you know. And getting away from it is actually really helpful, and I think in some ways has given me a lot more perspective on my work being able to, to get, you know, to literally run away from it and then run back to it and be like, oh yeah, okay, that's actually, that's, I'm not really achieving that, am I? Or, oh, that actually does work. Yeah. You know, so. You run with a group or solo? Uh, I have, I have like, we have some friends that we kind of go out from time to time. It kind of depends on everybody's work schedule. I like to go out during the week. I don't have a real job, so like, I don't <laughs> like to, I like to go out during the week when the trails aren't totally jammed. So it depends on, I have a couple other friends who are musicians who run, ultras and so we'll go out and run together but yeah i mean i'll go out by myself i'll go out with other people yeah, you, you know mix it up yeah let's talk about the teenage fan club okay this is this this is so cool that and i was never that into their music but that was according to what i read that was your favorite band still is yeah still, still is your still favorite is, band. yeah and bandwagon esque was your favorite album by your favorite band yes that's true so you decide to just re-record and cover the thing from start to finish. Yeah, well, what happened was there was a label in Seattle called Turntable Kitchen that was curating a series of uh, vinyl releases that were going to be bands covering whole albums or artists covering whole albums. And, and they, they approached me about it, and I was like, that's a great idea. And I had, there were a couple other records I kind of considered, but once I... gave you a choice? Yeah, I could just choose to okay. do whatever I wanted, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just after kind of thinking about what I wanted to do, Bandwagon S kind of became like a no-brainer. Um, because that, that record came out when I was 14, and it was this record that, you know, I grew up in this kind of small town outside of, well, not small town, but a Navy town on the other side of Seattle called mm -hmm. Bremerton. And, you know, this is early 90s, there's no internet, 
the only radio stations are mainstream radio. Um, we could, you know, a couple friends of mine could get a college station from where they live, but you know, it was really, you were pretty isolated. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it was watching 120 minutes on MTV, which was like the alternative indie video, sh- you know, thing it was on for like 2 a.m. to 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. Or going to Seattle and kind of just perusing record stores and buying music magazines. There was really no, it was really difficult for us to kind of get culture. And when I heard that record amongst a number of other records, but that record in particular, it really, I really connected with it because sure. it, it, it reminded me of a lot of the records that I grew up listening to in, in, our house you know it was like it sounded a lot like you know the beatles and uh the birds and and stuff um, your folks were listening so, to. yeah exactly and you know i think you when you're that hearing yeah well i think when you're that age you know when you're a teenager you you know you you're always constantly trying to reject the things that your parents taught you right mm-hmm. but i think <laughs> it, i think in learning i think in, in thinking kind of falling in love with that 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 record it made me realize even at that age that like, yeah, you know, some of the music that my parents listened to actually is pretty fucking good. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a bridge between, you know, the culture that I was a part of and, you know, the music that I had grown up with that was really familiar. It's so, so funny you say the bridge because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because growing up you'd hear your folks uh, listening to stuff. And so now when I'm in my car and listening to satellite radio, I listen to the bridge. Like if... Mm-hmm. If, if you had a timer on all of my stations, whether it's Spectrum or Classic Rewind or Vinyl or Bridge, the Bridge gets played more than just because these old songs, you never, you never bought that music, you never chose to, but now it just comes back to me and it's, whether it's Jim Croce or, or Hall and Oates or mm-hmm. just stuff that I'm like, oh my God, it's so good. People give me shit all the time for listening. Like my, my radio is always on the Bridge. Well, I, I really believe that, you know, the music that you were brought up with that, you, that was on your and that was on the radio or that your parents were playing when you were a kid, that's the music that you truly love. Mm. Because you 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 absorbed it in an age where you did you you weren't able to determine whether it was like quote cool or not. Right. It was just on and it was catchy and it was you know, it was uh, evocative and it moved you at this very young age. But then there comes this time, at least came this time came for me when I was a teenager where you're getting into punk rock and underground music, and you want to you want to you want to shun that stuff. You want to because you're 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 trying to kind of create your own uh, identity, and you're creating your own identity through the things that you like. Because when you're 13, 14 years old, you haven't done anything. Right. You're not a complete person. So, but you want your own identity. So you create your own identity through the things that yeah. you like. Maybe my 15 year old twin daughters will listen to this because they're pretty. They 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 fully believe they're complete. <laughs> they're ready. I think I probably did when I was 15 as well, right? We all did. They're 15 going we're, on 30. We all did. But, um, but you know, at that age, you, you know, I think it's the reason that there's so much tribalism amongst in, in high school because everybody is, you know, uh, everybody's trying to create an identity. But, you know, kids are, kids are too fearful. Most kids are too fearful to truly create their own identity. They want to be a part of a, of a, of a group so that they're protected, right? You know, so they so they they're not ridiculed for liking weird things or right. dressing weird or whatever. Right. And you know that some sometimes that extends into adulthood, but uh, you know, some you know, I think at a certain point you kind of get some perspective on it. But at the same time, as I'm listening to the bridge, which is channel 32 on Sirius, I, I can I can also go six channels up to Ozzy's Boneyard <laughs> and be perfect. Like that is what I listened to growing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just hair metal, hair metal, hair <laughs> metal, and it, it it's 
to go between the two is, is like going between CNN and Fox. Well, but it's also like, it also, you say that almost as if you have to, with the assumption that you have to choose one or the other, right? No, no, I, yeah, okay. but I, I, I'm, I'm perfectly happy in, in, as long as they're playing something that I'm into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can live in both places. Yeah, I, I think I've learned that as I've gotten older. Like, yeah, you can like a lot of disparate stuff. It doesn't have to all be one genre, you know? But I think when you're younger, you certainly kind of like, no, I'm into metal. Like, no, I'm into rap. Like, I'm into punk. No, when when I was we were young and into hair metal, I mean you would never you never would have talked about Hall and Oates. Right. What was your favorite what was your favorite hair metal band? Uh, um well they're not hair metal, but and I talk about Iron Maiden a lot on this podcast because I still I'm obsessed with Iron Maiden. Yeah, Iron Maiden's the best. They thank you. Yeah. This, Iron Maiden's great. Because if you said anything other than that, we're over. Yeah, no, we'll Iron never Maiden's be great. friends. Thank you. Yeah, they're great. There's no oh, I can't. irons. Yeah, I, I love Maiden, and people yeah. are like, "What?" Like, I I just love it. I love writing to it. I love listening to it. I I love just missed them on their latest tour, but like, I love Iron Maiden. Yeah, and they still own. They 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 didn't they didn't kind of water it down and start writing ballads and get it's, strings in there and stuff. They kept they kept rocking. It's and they are bigger than ever, and this whole the whole shtick. The 747 painted up with their stuff and Eddie on the tail and Bruce Dickinson flying. And it's, it's like I've watched all the documentaries. I watch everything on YouTube. I, I can't, and if you ask me if you could have anybody on this podcast, it is Bruce Dickinson. All right. Or maybe Neil Peart. One of the two. I think you probably have better luck getting uh, Bruce Dickinson probably. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But um, I just I, I can't get enough Maiden. So it's not truly – and we're not talking about Poison or – rat or although i mm-hmm. listen to all of that doc and the scorpions that to me is that's hair metal and yeah. maiden was, was they're kind of og like they were kind of they're kind of they're in their own kind of category i'm so almost. glad you're in yeah maiden. of course god day made <laughs> higgs where's the email do we have the email from the guy from uh, teenage fan club that did you you know and it wasn't an email but it was a quote about your oh cover. yeah 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 you yeah, saw it, obviously. I did. Well, I'm, I'm friends with Norman Blake okay. from Teenage Fan Club. So when I was making this record, uh, it sounds weird to say I'm making a record that already exists, but when I was making my version of the record, um, you, know, there were, you know, the original album doesn't have lyrics in it. So then you got to go to the internet and try to find them. But <laughs> as, a, as somebody who writes lyrics, I'll tell you and your listeners that a good 70% of the lyrics on all of those like lyric sites are, are usually not correct. Right. Right. They're usually somebody, a fan, just like, you know, this is what they think. And our lyrics are in all the albums and they'll, they'll still be wrong, which is kind of weird. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so I would pull these, li- so I would pull some of the lyrics off of, off, you know, off the internet and I would email Norman and be like, Hey man, is this right? Cause I, you kind of, it's kind of mush mouthy. Like on the, I can, I never really knew what the lyric was on the album. Cause I, you know, I don't want to say it's because of his accent, but you know, he's Scottish. Sure. And, uh, and uh, he was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, no problem. So the whole time I was doing this record, I was emailing with Norman every couple well, days cool. to make sure. That was, yeah, and, and they're all those guys. I, I, don't, I know Norman better than I know the other guys. Um, they're, just, they're still a band today. They just, I just saw them play in San Francisco this past spring. And in a lot of ways, they, they're, they, they're the kind of band that I, I want my band to be in the yep. sense that these guys have been doing this for a really long time. They're all really good friends and really close to each other. And it's clear they're doing this because they love doing it. Mm. You know, they, 
I don't, you know, I would imagine they're probably, you know, not buying second homes, you know, off of the, you know, money from Teenage Fan Club, but they make a living at it. And, you know, while their popularity in pop culture has certainly kind of waxed and waned over the last 25 years or so, you know, going to see them play, you're in a room with, you know, a thousand other people who love this band as much as you do. And they have a clear appreciation of that. It's yeah. clear that... Did you sit in with them? I did not, know, no. But, um... Well, that would have been pretty rad. It would have been pretty rad. But uh, I, I never, I never want to be that guy that um, asked to do that, you know? Yeah. Like if Norman would have been like, hey, man... Uh, but you were checking the inbox. Yeah, no, I was like, hey, where you want to come and play Everything Flows? Like, yeah, I would have, I would have done it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I never, I, I, you know, because I've had people that I know kind of, hey, man, let me come up and play guitar on this song. It's like, dude, we're, we're kind of trying to do a show here. I don't want, I mean, like even the people that I care about, I don't want to indulge your kind of stage hopping, yep. you know, uh, thing in the middle of our show. Um, so I, I'm very, very sensitive about that with other people. I never, I never invite myself up. So I definitely didn't want to do it with Teenage Fan Club. But yeah, it's like, I mean, they, they're, they're very much the kind of band that I want. I mean, they're maybe 10 years older than I am, still doing it, still enjoying it. They get together, make a record every five years. And, you know, depending on how our band continues to kind of exist in the world, maybe there's a time where, you know, we won't put records out as frequently. But, you know, I, don't, I can't imagine a time where I won't be doing this band sure. in some capacity. And the, did you listen to the Ryan Adams cover of 1989 from? I've heard some of it. Yeah, some of it. So yeah. I, I love Ryan's music, and and but it was just when I heard that you were doing this, I was like, oh, this is that's what Ryan did. He took Taylor Swift's 1989 and just start to finish. And um, I don't know. Obviously, that doesn't make a trend, but it was. I loved that version of it, and I got endless shit for listening to it in the car because I have. Younger kids, I have a mm -hmm. six-year-old girl who loves the Taylor Swift version. Right, it, right. She was like, "Why is there a boy singing <laughs> this song? I want the girl to sing." But they knew; she knew immediately that although that it is different, um, she said, "Why is there a dude singing?" Like it was. Anyways, I, I mean, I think it's I, I I think it's really cool to see kind of what my contemporaries are doing and other musicians and people are doing to kind of keep uh i i think because of the the way the music industry has gone over the past 15 years yeah um changed a lot it's changed a lot and i think uh, but it's been i think you know there are people who will kind of throw their hands up and and bitch and moan about it but there's also people who will get creative with it and find new ways to present not only their own music but just to kind of have fun with uh the fact that we live in a world now where I could record a record today and it could be in the world tomorrow yeah. and everyone would have access to it for free. And, for free. and, you know, when I was growing up, um, you know, all the records that I wanted to, all the music that I wanted to listen to meant music that I had to purchase. And that music that I had to purchase existed an hour's ferry away and like, you know, a walk around Seattle to record stores trying to find that wow. shit. Because, you know, growing up in Bremerton, we didn't have, you know, I, I wasn't going to find you know, the new uh, Tree People record at Sam Goody. It wasn't in the mall. You know what I mean? Like the things that I wanted, they, I had to go to specialty shops to get them. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the fact that music can enter and leave our lives so quickly in today's age uh, is not necessarily a good thing in and of itself. But I do like the fact that if you're a fan of Ryan Adams, you know, you can you can dig so deep online and find so many 
things that he's done that you wouldn't be able to find otherwise. I mean, whether it's like YouTube performances of covers or, you know, a specialty record of some sort that he put out. It's like that stuff is, you know, if you're, I think it's, it's never been a better time to be a fan of music. Yep. Um, but, f- but for you guys, it seems, and, and I think this has to be right, it, it means if you can't tour, and, and like tonight, you're going to play in mm-hmm. front of 20,000, tens of thousands of people. If you can't do that, then you can't make a living. You can't just make free music all day long and go play in front of five people. That's not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, there are people who, who, who have, are finding creative ways to make a living, be it a meager one, mm. not touring. But yeah, you're right. At least for us, the lion's share of our income comes from playing live. Yeah. But that's also something that we've always enjoyed. I mean, we, when we started out and our first record came out in 1998, and you know, we would play a show in San Francisco to 10 people and then go back a year and a half later and then there'd be 30 people and then 100 people and then 200 people. I mean, wow. you know, we, we built our entire band off of going out and playing live shows and we never really took support tours. We didn't, we didn't go out with a bigger band um, to try to like, you know, pilfer fans from sure. them. Not that, not that that's an inappropriate way to go about touring, but we just wanted to do our own thing. We're just like, yeah. Yeah, I'd rather go play to 30 people who are there to see us and we'll crash on somebody's floor that we meet rather than play, you know. Open for uh, you too. Yeah. I mean, probably at that time we would have probably open for you too. <laughs> okay. But, right. you know, let's say open, go to play a thousand capacity club and be ignored for a half hour. Mm. You know, for us, it felt it was more you, worth our time to go out and do our own shows. So, I mean, I think I can speak for all of us in saying like, we love playing live. I love, I feel so fortunate that this is a way to make a living, you know, for us. And, and I think that, you know, who God knows what techno- technological advances will come in the near future, but I really do believe that there is no substitute for being in the presence of live music and yeah. being around, surrounded by people all having this, a similar experience. I mean, we are all in our phones all the time. We're always distracted. We're always, we're always together alone having different experiences. You know, if you, you're, on the tr- you're on the subway in New York and everybody's having a different experience, but we're all doing the same thing. But when you're at a live show, you're with hundreds or thousands of people who are all there for this, you know, you know, seemingly the same purpose, which is to listen to live music and be in the presence of a a band that they like. Yeah. And it is a band. Death Cab is a band. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It's not you and a few dudes. I mean, it's, Oh no, it's always been a band. That's so cool. Yeah. I I ask people all the time on the show, like it is a band, right? Like this isn't your thing and you pay people by the day. And I mean, it's, it's a true, it's a team. Oh, for sure. I mean the band, when the band started in 1997, it was, you know, it was a solo, a solo project that I did and I made like a cassette that I played all the instruments on and then that went out in the world and then we put a band together from there. But, you know, it's always been a band from, you know, though we ne- let's put it this way. We, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now if it wasn't a band and always had been a band. Yeah. So, you know, I, I never, I'm never one to kind of uh, write some revisionist history about like, oh no, it's always been my thing. It's like, no, it's always been a band. And the reason that we're here is because it's a band. Yeah. How cool is Amy, man? She is the coolest. Yeah, she, she is the coolest. I, I would love to meet her. Yeah, I only bring that up because this, you know, these collaborations with her or with Feist on uh, "Dark Was the Night." I mean, there was such that compilation that Benefit record was so good, and your version were, with her was incredible. Hey, man, Amy, Amy is one of those just truly, truly. Tilted, am- I mean, tilted, like grown up. 
Mm-hmm. Like that was like a like a guilty pleasure, like till Tuesday. Till Tuesday. <laughs> I mean, because it, it was hair metal over here, and yeah. I was like, well, wait a minute. Well, tu- till this- Tuesday had the hair, you know. They did and have the she hair. She was smoking, and it was till Tuesday, and I'm like, okay, I, I'm not telling anybody, but I love that. <laughs> my my dad also has is like a, a massive Amy May. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a friend of Amy's, but I'm also a huge fan of hers. But my dad is uh, a a massive Amy Mann fan, and to the point where you know, you know, in my musical travels, I've got to meet some pretty incredible people. Mm-hmm. You are, of course, one of them. And, uh, but the person who's been, Amy Mann has been the most impressive, like musical slash celebrity person. I swear to God that That's I have met. a lot. No, it really is. Like my dad, like I think my, I'm introduced, I took my dad to see Amy in Seattle a couple of years ago and he was, I'd never seen him that nervous before. It was really, it was really pretty, it was, it was funny for me to see somebody who has been pretty even keel around some, you know, pretty, uh, pretty top shelf people sure. be so nervous around i mean and amy is one of those top shelf people don't, don't get me wrong but she's by no means a household name you know right. um but yeah she's a she's and yeah she's just really funny and really engaging and you know really inspiring person and uh, and underappreciated or unappreciated i think i mean in, by in terms of the the larger audience or the larger populace I, people don't she doesn't get the props that she deserves. Well, I feel like, you know, I feel like... And maybe rock, she's fine with that. I don't know. I, I, I don't get a sense from her that she, it bums her out. Mm. But I also think it's interesting that the era that we're living now, there, you know, there are very few universally known uh, rock stars. Sure. Uh, or I should say people who write their own songs, play guitars, more traditional rock music, of which I would consider our band more traditional you know, Amy's music is more traditional and it's of a, you know, it's of a particular rock and roll lineage, right? Um, and I feel that rock and roll as a genre has kind of started to lose its cultural cachet. You know, not only are there just so many more choices for people, you know, people, but people can listen to so many other things. But I think, I don't think that younger generations have the same reverence for, uh, um, you know, some of the older musical acts. Right that uh you know they do for bruno mars or taylor swift and that's totally fine that comes with no judgment that's not right or wrong but um it is interesting that i think we're starting to see this end of an era where rock bands will play stadiums you know i mean it's like u2 and coldplay and who else you know who else plays giant venues it's all older the rolling stones you know bands that you know are uh the rolling stones the rolling stones yeah still doing it still doing it how but I think that rock and roll's ability to kind of, as, as a pop culture kind of um, uh, force is not really what it used to be. And that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's much more of a niche kind of musical style, I feel, at this point. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the Postal Service because it was, it, 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 you know my history with the Postal Service? I, I, I yeah, I'm aware. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I didn't, and I just, I couldn't, when I read, I didn't know that, that in 2003, the, and I'm not taking it, this is just, I'm just repeating history. Mm-hmm. I'm not making any digs on the Postal Service. It'd be fine if you did. It wouldn't bother um, me in the least bit. I'll let others do that. But <laughs> the fact that they send you a cease and desist letter in 2003 because your band is called the Postal Service. And then you somehow worked it out and then you did it, played a gig for them and then you let them use your music. I'm like, how the fuck do you do that? 
That was a really, <laughs> really bizarre I chapter. I need that playbook. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was a really, it was a really bizarre chapter in, in uh, my musical journeys because we had to. So I, you I'm, can't use our name. Yeah. So we, we got. Are because we are the USPS. Yeah, so we, we got a cease and desist letter. For those who might not be familiar, we got a, the Postal Service, which is an electronic project that I did with my friend Jimmy Tamborello. We got a cease and desist letter in and 2000. Jenny Lewis. And Jenny Lewis, yes. In about 2003, 2004, that said, you need to stop using this name uh, because, um, you know, we have... I, I, don't, I don't know what the legalese of it was, but to break it down in the most crude terms, it's this. they, they wanted to avoid the term the postal service becoming uh similar to how you would say like um, hey can you hand me a kleenex and it doesn't have to be a kleenex brand you know what i'm talking about a tissue hey can right. you hand me a kleenex they didn't want the their brand of being the postal service to be i guess watered down or compromised by someone else using the name that might confuse people it, it all was very silly but we we found it really funny but it be it very quickly became really not, not funny. Fun, no, it became really. not funny when uh, your because first lawyer bill. It was not. Funny. It was not funny, and you know we were kind of these sardonic kind of like, what are they going to do? And it's like, oh now, oh we do know what they're going to do. So, but I have to say, so we went, <laughs> so we we. This had, is where the playbook starts. Keep right. Going. So we went. So we went to L.A. Uh, well, I guess Jimmy lived there, but I went to L.A. with a representative from Sub Pop Records. All both from Seattle. Great label. And great label. And we ended up in this conference room uh, with uh, in some hotel in Century City with five or six bureaucrats from the Postal Service, um, <laughs> all of which were, you know, nice people. They they were nice people. Um, at least they seemed in the they they weren't adversarial towards us, I should say. But they also clearly had absolutely no idea about how the music industry worked um you know i use this term with the least negative connotations ever but they were just really really square um and you know they were kind of uh pushing this negotiation forward about how what are we going to do here because let's try to come at least at least they were willing to find a solution that worked for both of us rather than just continue with this whole like stop using the name right um so what ended up happening is they ended up... This, I'm sorry, this whole thing is crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. But what's even more crazy to me now looking back on it, it was crazy at the time, was that not only did they not make us use the name, they gave us, they gave us in quotes, um, a, a, uh, a license to use the name in, into, into, at, you know, as long as we wanted to use it, in, as long as, you know somebody didn't get arrested or there was some kind of like nefarious thing that sure. we got tied up into whatever it was. But then also what was even more bizarre is that they purchased, they purchased thousands of CDs from sub pop records <laughs> to sell in their stores because they thought that this would be a way to make the postal service, the U S postal service cooler by having the postal service cds for sale in actual post offices and so we left this meeting thinking like well no that actually worked for our benefit because right. they didn't understand that they didn't have to buy them they could like the way record stores work is like you can you basically you kind of 
pay a portion of the sale and then the CDs would go to the record store. And if they didn't sell them, they would send them back and you'd owe them money again. So they just bought the CDs. Like, as if like, if you wanted to buy 10 CDs we, and instead of twelve ninety nine, we sold them to you for eight ninety nine. Yeah. And now you own 12. That's basically what they, it was, that was their suggestion. So myself and Jimmy and the representative from Sub Pop Records were like, we left the meeting like, so this happened in the meeting. In the this meeting over the course of weeks, or this. Was um, a- this was a suggestion they had in the meeting, and then it got worked out later. So basically, we ended up. They ended up buying. I don't know how many, maybe a couple thousand records. That they really didn't have to buy. They there was no reason for them to do that. Certainly benefited us, sure. and I guess in their minds it benefited them. Um, and then we had to go and like play this postmaster. Uh, convention in DC, which was just a hoot. I mean, they, you know, they 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 flew us out and they paid for everything, and we had to play three songs, and we just brought our laptops, and I sang, and it was super easy. And then we're in a meet and greet, like in a in a mixer with you know five hundred postal employees, and everybody was really nice, and like it was just a weird chapter. And I have to say, like you know, I'm kind of giving them like a little bit of ribbing on the whole thing, but. I have to say, to their credit, yeah. they they didn't bring the hammer down like no. they could have brought it down. No, they could have made they could have made our lives really miserable. I can and tell you how they can bring the hammer. I, yeah, I can imagine you might <laughs> be able to. Uh, but I think they just realized we were small potatoes, and that like this, they, I maybe I have to imagine maybe one of them or a couple of them had kids, maybe teenagers who knew oh, the right, group right. and liked it and heard this was going on because it would become news at that point that we got a cease and desist. I can only assume maybe you know maybe some people there were like hey this is really not worth it this is these people are cool let's just figure it out so it was a weird chapter but i always think it's funny like yeah we so i guess you know the post service record sold over a million copies and at least two or three thousand of those copies thanks went to them or thanks to the usps so hey thanks guys i mean i don't know wow. why do you name a band the postal service uh well at the time uh we you know i guess this i guess if you had a good internet connection you could have sent musical files across that connection but this is like 2001 2002 so it was just easier to like jimmy was living in uh los angeles i was living in seattle and he would make a beat and then he would mail me that cdr to seattle i would put it in my computer cut it up make it what i wanted to be and then do vocals and guitars and other things on it and then send him back a cd with the mix of that um all via regular mail just via regular mail so we thought like hey wouldn't it be this is a funny name because we do all of our we make music via the post service so we should be the postal service oh my God. i mean nowadays you can put a whole file on a sure. dropbox and just you know you, do, you can be in just different before comments. you leave you have to give me the playbook maybe i should find this person from sub pop whoever was in that room <laughs> that's a magician i can send you tony keywell's email if tony you'd like keywell <laughs> we've tried to settle this case numerous times we need Tony Keywell. I think we need... I, he's a master negotiator, Tony I mean, Keywell. And by the way, the way this is working out, they want 100 mil. The shit might work out where I leave with like 20 mil. You know what? If I think if Tony is if, if Tony's negotiating this thing, I think that's kind of the ballpark you'll be I, in. We need Tony Keywell. Yeah, is he go, still a sub pop? Oh, he certainly is. I can give you his phone number right after this podcast is done. That is... That's surreal. The whole thing is surreal. It was really weird. And I we never heard anything. I mean, maybe after this podcast, I'll hear about it again. But um, I haven't heard, we've heard hide nor hair from them since that we did that convention. I think they just kind of had bigger fish to fry yeah. and bigger problems like with people. 
I think I think their business. I think I don't think it's any. I don't think it's any uh, uh, secret that that the USPS has struggled as other companies have sure. started to compete with them. Yeah. So I think they realized they had they had bigger problems to deal with there than kind of bullying a Cause small guys, indie rock band. You guys band. still go around as the postal service. No, we did a well. We did a we did the date with the I mean, the tr the trip with Nick, right? The trails that was that was the Pulse of a Story. That, that yeah, that well, we you know the band was that project was never really a band. It was like just Jimmy and I and Jenny singing and doing some other stuff. And we did a tour in two thousand three, a couple shows in two thousand four, and then I went off and was doing Death Cab stuff. Jenny was doing Rilo Kylie and her solo stuff. Jimmy was doing his stuff, and we reunited to do well, not even reunited. We just did a tour in two thousand thirteen mm -hmm. because it was the tenth anniversary of that record. Uh, but we played our last show in Chicago at the end of that tour and just kind of said, this is the last show. At Lala. We played Lala. Uh, actually, at the Metro, the day after Lollapalooza. Oh, okay. Uh, so we, that was our last show. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we could have we extended it and kept kind of picking off shows here and there. record. We could have, but I think after 10 years, we just kind of realized, you know, the, the spark in that initial record, something I look back at, that was a really, really fruitful time in my life creatively. I was writing give up uh the pulses record and transatlanticism at the same time which are two records that you know are of the three or four of them the, the best known for mm. um and it was a really really fruitful time creatively i i don't and i think that as i've gotten older and i've had to kind of it's it becomes you know things are things do not flow creatively as well as they did when you're 22 because right. you know at this point i've written so much music i have so much music behind me that in order to write new music I have a whole back catalog to kind of deal with as far as like not writing myself into corners that I've already written myself into. So, um, uh, you know, I don't think I could, I don't think I would have, I, I'll just say I do not have the creative energy to sustain right, the two, two bands at the same time. You know, at this point in my now life. you're a runner. And I'm you're a runner. I got to and you got to run. I mean, you can't do three things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got How am I going to run uh, 70 miles a week if I got to write two albums for the Just don't go back to the stuff. postal service, stop running and start drinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that that's a weird bizarre award. I don't think it's going to yeah, it's going to happen, yeah. Let's end with the question you've surely had more than uh, any in your entire life. How do you come up with the name Death Cab for Cutie? Well, I, I didn't come up with it. Um, okay. but there you uh, go. yeah, that's exactly. A good answer. Yeah. But uh, no, it's uh, there was a band in the 60s um, called the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. They were a British band that was kind of like a you know, in the same way that like garage bands today would kind of fetishize 60s, you know, garage pop or something mm -hmm. like that and make music that kind of sounds like that. They were doing that of like English 78s from like the 30s and 40s. So they were this kind of like throwback band at the time kind of a, i wouldn't call them a novelty act but they were certainly um uh like kind of an eclectic act and they they pl they had a song called death cab for cutie that was in the beatles movie the magical mystery tour mm -hmm. so in the second to last scene you know the beatles are in a strip club and the you know the band playing in the strip club is the bonzo dog do that band they're playing the song death cab for cutie so you know when i was a kid and i saw that i was like that would make a great band name and uh, it it served us well. I do I do think that it's it's definitely one of those names that you have to explain to like older relatives, you know, because it, it doesn't when you say death cab for cutie really quickly, it, the words are not they're difficult to pick out. So usually I have to like mime it out, you know, death no, cab like a cab. Um, so I think you know I always think like going back if I could go back and do it again I might just do something, just something like the tables. 
the chairs, something I, a little more just <laughs> direct. To, I got to tell you, the, the the and you get this a lot on Alt Nation. It's another series channel I listen to. Um, I mean, we're getting to this point where the band, the 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 names that people are coming up with for some of these bands, I can't, you know, uh, I just can't. It's getting it's getting bad. Well, I think I think that if there's one thing, there are many things that I like about the name, but if there's one, the thing I love about the name the most is that it doesn't place our bands in a in a particular time period. Mm. Like you know, at the time that we were putting out our first couple records, every band was a the blanks like the kills the strokes the white stripes i love all those bands but that was like a trend that was happening everybody was a the and then a plural word and then in the mid aughts there were a lot of like uh bands that were like named after just a statement like uh throw me the statue or uh clap your hands say yeah also great bands but you know i'm not saying it to diss them i'm just saying like you know there was this trend of bands naming themselves a phrase that that made virtually no sense and over the past four or five years it seems like every there are so many bands that have named themselves a plural with no the you know so it's like you know fences trucks tables you know and and that those are all fine band names i'm not trying to you know throw anybody under the bus right. but those names definitely place those bands in a particular time period yeah. if somebody is called if your band is called tables it's you're most likely a band that started in like 2012 or 2013 right. and it, it's very it very much places you in a particular era and i'm the most i wasn't intentional by any stretch of the imagination but i am you know uh, retroactively proud of the fact that our band name doesn't exist and it isn't. It wasn't a trend. It wasn't. Right. We weren't naming. We weren't naming our. We weren't following a trend of naming how people name their bands at that time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't intentional. It just happened that way. But you know, I, you know, obviously, uh, no one's. You know, no one's. You know, no one's going to like ever say anything bad about the White Stripes, the Strokes, the Kills, or any of those bands. They're fucking great. I listen to them all the time. But I'm just glad that we. Th- there was never a perception that we were trying to follow in a in a, yeah. in a similar kind of. How about uh, the the? That was another guilty pleasure. Oh, I, there's no guilty pleasure at all with the the. But man, when I you're a hair metal band. kid and yeah. you, and then you hear Matt Johnson and the, the you're like, oh my god. I rem- I remember that is something like I've never heard in my life. <laughs> I I remember we played a show in uh, this is somewhat related to at least the guilty pleasures of metalheads, but we played a show in in D.C. in 2006, and it was uh, at this place, Constitution Hall, and I remember uh, it was a seated show, and I remember these three metal dudes showed up and we're sitting like fourth row and they all kind of came in and like slunk down and they had you know like death metal shirts long hair and i was just looking at these kids being like what like you're like what are you doing here like i don't understand this like why because you know everybody else in the crowd is very looks very different than these three metal dudes and i remember looking at these guys being like what 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 is these guys what's the deal with these guys and at some point i see one of them like you know jason our drummer's playing this beat the kind of signature beat that he plays and like one of the guy turns to his friend and goes and like mimes the beat, but it looks like he's kind of fucking with him. It looks like he's fucking with Jason, right. and, and like that kind of made me upset. It's like, what are these? I'm like trying to like figure out trouble. why are you here? Like what? Like I mean, not start trouble, but like I, I just I need I need to know why these guys are here. And after the show, my bandmate Nick, like they were waiting back towards the stage door, and <laughs> Nick, uh, they stopped Nick, and they were like. Because I had talked to Nick, like, dude, these metal guys, that I don't know what their deal was. And uh, and and uh, they were like, yeah, well, you know, 
you know we're all we're in a metal band and uh but you guys are like our real favorite band oh, wow. and um you know we didn't want to like we were like kind of nervous because we were worried we'd we would see kids from school here at your show that they would see us here and then they would have a lot of questions as to why we were at your show because you know we're trying to they didn't say this exactly but they were trying to maintain their metalness yeah. and being at the death cab show was kind of would potentially throwing that off and Nick was like, yeah, when I saw, I saw one of you guys like kind of playing along with Jason, it's like, oh yeah, well, that's our favorite song. And well, you know, we always play it in practice, but the other guy in the band doesn't realize that it's Death Cab. And if he knew, you know, we'd be in big trouble, like in our little metal community. And it was this so moment of like- grab three t-shirts from the merch yeah. store and say, here you go, guys. <laughs> and I remember just being like, I felt like a real asshole after that. Cause I was like, man, I, I, and it was a real like teaching moment, so to speak, where I was like, you know what? Like I need to just- People, music music comes to people in all different yeah. of all different walks of life for all different reasons and like i saw these it was this was me i this was my mistake i saw these kids and my first question was like what are those guys doing here they don't look like everybody else that's yeah. here and it was a real moment where i felt really bad about it afterwards and i was like yeah that that's on me that was something that i should have done but it was also funny that those guys were there and they the reason they looked so awkward is because they were t they were like really scared that somebody from their school is going to see him there. I meant to say this in the, my intro last week to tell this story. This has nothing to do with the metal guys, but I want to, I want to get it out of the way because it was, it was, ex it's in, in the vein of what you just said, Dave sitting over here, helping with the sound. We were flying back from somewhere uh, recently, a couple weeks ago when we were in the airport in the bar, our flight was super delayed. So we're in there having, a, and there was this guy in there that was so obnoxious. And I don't mean like drunk, obnoxious, just like, just like Midwest obnoxious. And, and I'm like, look at this fucking guy. This guy is wearing everybody out. And so I have, I've made my judgment. Fast forward to we get on the plane. We finally leave, get on the plane. I'm sitting in the last row of first class. And I hear something going on behind me. And, and, it, and I turn around and he's sitting next to what turns out was his brother who had something, I don't know what was wrong with him. Um, and and I, caught, I turned around and I caught this moment where he was so kind to his brother and i remember thinking i'm such an asshole you know i had judged this dude in the bar and just like this cheese boy i don't know what i was thinking and then bam i just it, it just went over me like it, it hit me like a ton of bricks and it was but just this compassion and empathy and friendship that, it, that, he, that he had with his his brother wasn't in the bar i don't mm -hmm. know where his brother was but mm -hmm. i just caught it and I thought, look at that. I mean, that's, that's the true story. And so it's the same, uh, I even get emotional thinking about it, but, or talking about it, but it's the same thing, right? It's like, I judged that book by its cover. Well, and I it, mean, I think, I think especially, I well, yeah, I mean, especially in today's times, I think that, I think that we're all kind of doing a version of that, mm. you know, as we yeah. watch the news and we, you know, um, see what's happening in the, you know, around this country. And I don't mean to take it in like a really, uh, political kind of angle, but I do think that what you're saying is really true that I think mm -hmm. that if, if I think what's, I think what's really missing today more than ever is just people having empathy and seeing each other's humanity. Right. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody else. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's important to have those moments. And then also more importantly to do what you're doing right now is to like acknowledge it yeah. publicly, you know, like, yeah, look, uh, I, like you know, I meant to say it in my every before each yeah. of these, I do an intro where I just talk about three or four things that are on my mind, and mm -hmm. I meant to do it a week or two ago, and I just forgot. And and thankfully, you just told that story, which is like I just lived that, 
and 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 I and that was a mistake on my part, and so. And you know, and more more times than not, those 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 moments don't have overt consequences, right? Like you're in a bar, and this guy is being obnoxious, and you're just like, oh, "Fuck this guy!" Seriously, when right. is this guy gonna shut up? But you're not like you didn't you didn't start. There was no incident with a guy. You didn't like yeah. go up with the guy, and like it's just. But in your mind, you're thinking this, and you know, thinking it and doing it are are two different things. But thinking it is definitely a thing, right? Mm. So, um, you know, for you to like, you could have easily. This could have you, this could have happened, and then you could have just like never mentioned it to anybody. Not n not you know n not to mention doing it on a podcast, right? So you know, I think that I think that sharing these kinds of stories uh, amongst our our friends and families, and with even people we don't know, I think are are incredibly valuable these days because I think that empathy and understanding sure. are at a you know they're at an all time the low. The need is at an all time <laughs> yeah, at an all time high. low. Yeah. All right, now this is truly the last question. What is the best record you've heard in the last two or three months? Because I'm going to go listen months. to it as soon as we're done. Okay, um, I have I have two. Okay, I have two. Um, uh, one is a newer record that uh, I believe came out uh, this year um, by a, a band uh, called Charlie Bliss. Uh, the record's called Guppy. Um, and it's a four-piece kind of '90s-inspired uh, female-fronted uh, guitar group that is just wonderful. I mean, she writes fucking great songs, and uh, they're actually on a label called Barsuk Records, which is where uh, our Death Cab started. Um, so it's been really cool to see. You know, I I, I really I really love seeing. I mean, now that I've, I'm over forty and been making records for twenty years, I really love when I hear a band that is really, really, really good and really, really young, mm. you know, and you just, you just see this wide open field in front of yeah. them, you know, it's like they could go in any direction, you know, it could, they could, it could last 30 years. It could blow up tomorrow. Yep. You know, I don't know them personally. I'm not sure, but, and even so it, you wouldn't be able to know. Um, so I, I, I'm re I get really inspired and really excited when I hear new music that I really connect with. And it doesn't happen as often, uh, it doesn't happen as often as it used to. I've just heard so much music at this point in my life that, you know, I don't get that. That itch doesn't get scratched as often as it did when I was eighteen and Taking hadn't the ferry. Heard, yeah, I hadn't heard that much music before. Um, the other record that is a little more avant-garde um, came out a couple of years ago that I just kind of stumbled into is a record by a gentleman named Jeffrey Cantu uh, Ledesma. Uh, record's called Songs of Forgiveness, and it's a hmm. really uh, just really beautiful. Um, ambient kind of droney guitar record um and it's it's you know for me i i i tend to kind of i the two i tend to either gravitate towards like fairly straightforward you know uh intelligently written kind of guitar music like charlie bliss and then also i, li I like to listen to a lot of krautrock kind of droney experimental uh ambient stuff and this Jeffrey Cantu Ledesma record is just one of those things that st I stumbled into and it was just like where has this record been my whole life I just right. want to it's you know three songs each one is you know 20 minutes long or whatever and it just I just don't want it to stop I just want it I just I don't want <laughs> the music to stop and I, I I'm really drawn to um like hypnotic music that you can just kind of lose yourself in the beauty of it and yeah. that record's doing it for me completely killer Ben thank you so much
Yeah, thanks Amazing for having me. conversation. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks yeah, for having me. Absolutely. Let's go for a run sometime. Yeah, you want to? I will. I, once right. I start running again, I'll okay. come find you and we'll go run. Yeah, sounds great. Let's yeah. do it. Thanks for tuning in to the Forward Podcast. Like, uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please. God knows I need suggestions. Um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever, let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. Theforwardpodcast at wedo, W-E-D-U, sport, singular, dot com. Theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. 